you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to read the first 15 verses of this chapter. Though this story backs up into chapter 11 and continues throughout chapter 12, and really beyond that even, we're going to limit our reading this morning again to 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and reading down to verse 15. It says this, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup, and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But took the poor man's lamb, and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, and master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And it, excuse me, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Whereof, excuse me, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. I'd like to conclude our reading this morning at Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. And forgive me for some of the difficulties I had reading the text today. Um, the title of our message drawn from this story is Blind to Our Own Sin. 
blind to our own sin. This, uh, this chapter has always been a very hard one for me to read. Um, in part because as we look in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and 16 and we get introduced to this young boy named David, um, he, it's easy to become, um, he's just likable, just to be blunt. Um, he's just a likable person that you can read about. His disposition, his behavior, um, even the indications of his personality and the grace that he showed um, throughout his young life is something to be envied and, and patterned after, followed after. And even when he becomes king, he is a good king. And, and obviously, um, this blemishes that to some degree. And so, when we turn to chapter 11 and we begin to read what he did, it always just kind of sinks in my stomach a little bit. Um, but I suppose in reading these scriptures and in considering what is done here, there are two things that it does in my mind at least. Uh, number one, it shows me how easily that we can slip off if we're not close to the Lord and we're not walking in truth, just how quickly that we can do something that would be unnatural to our character. Or maybe not unnatural is the right word, but out of, uh, out of our normal character. And certainly, Satan knows that um, there are many people, just like King David here, that you have influence on, perhaps less than him, but that over years and years of your life, you have demonstrated certain qualities and a character, and you're a representation to them of the Lord and of His people, of religion, of whatever it is. And Satan, when trying to get at them, perhaps one of his successful tactics is to get to you first. And by bringing you down, that will so discourage their faith that they won't want to have anything to do with the Lord. So to me, one of the lessons that I learned from the overall part of this story is how vigilant you and I ought to be, how careful we ought to be in our conduct and our thoughts. Because I know a lot of people have made a lot of uh, comments about what was David doing on the rooftop and what was, why wasn't he in the front of the battle. I don't know that necessarily he was doing anything wrong. But... Certainly, he found himself in a pretty bad place, and it took but a moment, and that moment of walking on his own had a tremendous impact on a whole lot of people. Certainly a lesson that we learn here. The second lesson that we learn here, I think, in a general big picture sense, is how, how far a Christian can go in sin. Like how deep that hole is. This story is amazing to me just how deep that a good, faithful man of God can go into sin. If you go back and read chapter 11, which I would encourage you to do, I think the part above all that leaves me awestruck 
by the depth of David's sin is not just that in a moment of temptation that he lusted after a woman and sought after her. Not just that that woman was married to another man. And so not only did he fornicate, but that he committed adultery. Those things are bad enough. And not to mention that whenever he recognizes that he is, in essence, going to be caught, that he calls Uriah. And so David does what is so natural to the human heart. And that is, he once he realizes that his sin will be revealed, he does things to cover it up. And no longer does it become about righteousness. No longer does it come about what would please the Lord or what wouldn't please the Lord, but rather it becomes about his own reputation. And he loses sight of, I believe, the actions that he is committing and the things that he is doing. And all he can think about is, what are people going to say and think? And so in that, the spirit of covering it up, he goes and he gets Uriah to be brought back before him and calls him for some useless uh, questions, hoping that Uriah would go home, that he would be with his wife, be intimate with his wife, and that essentially they could blame that, the conception of that child on Uriah. But the faithful man Uriah, unwilling to um, find rest and comfort while he's back from war, lays, it, they said, the king's gate. So evidently there was a place where the soldiers and servants could, to, could sleep, and so that's where Uriah went. David kept him there for a couple days, hoping, I believe, that he would go back to his wife and that would be so instinctive, I think, that you, you just want to be back with your family, even if it's just for a night or two. And yet Uriah won't do it. He is too faithful to his duties. So finally, this is the part to me that reveals just the depth of David's sinfulness. He writes a message. And in that message, he says, I want the leader of the army... To go out and fight, and then in a moment, pull back all the troops except for Uriah. And I would imagine, like most things from the king, he takes that and he stamps it with his seal. And he gives it to Uriah. And Uriah has no idea that what he is carrying is his death warrant. So however long it took him to get back... He faithfully carries his death warrant to the commanding officer. And just imagine what it must have been like to be that commanding officer and open up that letter and see, look up at the man and look down at the letter and look up at the man and see, what? I'm to do what? And yet, he carries out his duty. And he has Uriah killed as... God said here, or as Nathan said here, by the sword of the Ammonites. In one sense, it's just mind-boggling. It's hard to grasp that, one, a person would do that. Two, that a, a Christian would do that. But then to take it a step further, someone who had demonstrated himself to be a faithful man after God's own heart. 
And yet I'm reminded of the old saying that at one time when I was speaking to my dad, it had such an impact on me. It was about probably, gosh now, 16, 17 years ago. There was a situation that happened and I was just in awe of it, that somebody would do something like this. That was a Christian man. And my dad said the saying that I don't ever remember here ever having heard before, and it was, except for the grace of God, there go I. And I said, what did you say? And he said, except for the grace of God, there go I. I thought about it, and I thought, am I capable of doing that? And at the time, perhaps in youthful self-righteousness, I thought, no, I would never do that. And yet this story just swings wide back open the truth of how far fallen that our flesh truly is. You and I can fall into terrible sin, except for God's grace preventing it from us. This story, if it does anything to us, it ought to humble us. Because as we look around, and I'll say this, it seems as though some people, their favorite hobby is to sit around and look at other people's sins. To make observations, and you have friends like that. You have acquaintances where anytime you get around them, you know what they're going to do. They're going to find a person who has done something recently in their family or a a mutual acquaintance that you you have with one another, and they're going to find a way to bring out all of their sin and to lay it before the table and to discuss all of those things that they do wrong and why they ought not to have done those things. And if that person that they're speaking to has any sense at all, likely they would agree with them. I shouldn't have done those things. I ought not to sin in that way. And yet there are people who seem to find some sense of self-esteem or perhaps excitement out of discussing in detail the failures of other people, all failing to acknowledge that within our corrupt sinful hearts is the capacity to do a hundredfold worse than what those people are doing. It's important that we consider the company that we spend, that we're with. I don't want to be with people like that. In short, because I don't want to be a person like that. And I know how easily it is to fall into that trap of getting within that group of people or with that person. And as they begin to chirp, allowing your own commentary to take over. And suddenly... It almost seems irresistible within the heart of man that we would compare ourselves by ourselves. That when given the opportunity, it seems almost irresistible. Or if not irresistible, perhaps a better word is just natural to chime in on all the failures and faults of other people. And let me say this morning that as natural as that is, as easily as easy as that comes, and perhaps as prevalent as that is amongst people, it is an easy thing to do, and yet it is a very destructive thing to do. I would encourage you today, cut company with those people. Don't be around people like that. Don't make close friendships with people like that and goodness if you have no choice but to be near people like that 
Won't you allow your silence to speak words enough? Because after a while, when a person won't comment or won't fall into that, uh, that habit of, of, of going down that path, guess what a person doesn't want to do with you anymore? Why? Because the silence is convicting. When a person is silent at the observation or comments about somebody's sin over and over and over, that speaks volumes to what you're willing to do and not do. It's easy for us here to look at David and condemn him of his sin. It's easiest for us to look in the New Testament at Peter and use both of the, these men as whipping boys as to the failures of Christians. And yet what I would have us to consider this morning is at what point have we used the same level of skepticism and judgment against ourselves rather than somebody else? David demonstrates this amazing capacity within our fallen nature. And that is this ability to be utterly blinded by our terrible, horrible sin. That, perhaps, of this whole story is the most amazing part of the sequence of events. Is not only does he do these things, but in doing these things, it seems as though he is blind and able to escape the immediate guilt of what he's done. I don't know how much time has elapsed here. We know that at least he found out that she's pregnant from the moment that he's done this. So at least a few months. And it seems to say at the end of chapter 12 that the child, she had given birth to the child. Now, I'm not going to promise to that. You can read it for yourself and determine. But it certainly seems like a reasonable estimation is months have passed since he has committed this deed till the time that Nathan the prophet comes and talks to him. And so imagine going months and months and months, knowing what has been done, and yet you seem to have escaped the the internal conflict and condemnation, or at least the godly sorrow that would provoke you to repentance. We know that he has not repented for his sin. That in some sense, it had become a way of life having lived with what he's done. You know, that's one of the problems with unrepented sin is that unrepented sin allows us to get comfortable living far from God. Because we all know that God won't fellowship with sin. We all know that God is not going to have this intimate relationship where we're going to be living with the spiritual vitality that we need to, being a good influence on others and growing in maturity in Christ. We know all that is not going to happen when we have a a sin as prominent as what David has done resting upon us completely unrepented of. It's bothered me lately. I've thought, I almost mentioned it this morning in our preliminaries about our services. I, I pray God would never let us get comfortable With unspiritual services, we go through periods of ebb and flow. And certainly that is natural to any church that we're going to see times where it's more quiet and where uh, people's interest lies a little more dormant for various reasons. And I'm not saying necessarily there's something unnatural or wrong about that. But hopefully there never comes a time in our church where we find ourselves being so preoccupied with other things, so uh, uh, incorrigible in our sins that we... We become unspiritual as a general rule around here. 
We don't want that to be the case. We want it to be the case where every few weeks, when we begin to realize, you know what, my mind and my heart has not been as focused upon spiritual things as they ought to be, I ought to have a little alarm go off in my mind and say, you know what, as I'm approaching Sunday, as Saturday night begins to roll around, I've not even thought about Sunday morning. I've not thought about our lost people. I've not given much contemplation to the things of God. Lord, please convict me of that, that you might change my attitude and my heart heart that I might focus more on you and that that focus would become uh, would unite me and God even closer that I might be led of your spirit within his services never becoming comfortable with being an unspiritual person not living near the Lord I want to be uncomfortable you recognize today that almost everything good in life that comes to pass before that good thing happens has discomfort involved It's the analogy that Jesus uses, carrying your cross. There's a cross to carry. And as long as we live in this life, we're going to bear a cross. And in any moment, if we get used to laying our cross down and living life more freed and unburdened by that heavy Christian cross he has given us, let us not be comfortable with that. Let us cling to our cross. Let us recognize the purpose of our cross. Let us die carrying it and needing others to help us carry it as we go up Golgotha's hill. Here, David, he just, he could just, he lived for so long, not even mindful of such obvious sin in his own heart. I, 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 I want to say I wonder what it's like, but I already know what it's like because I've been here. What it's like to pray when this is between you and God. Well, I think you know what it's like. I know what it's like. It's empty is what it is. It's not that we don't bow and get down and go through the motions of it. But it's that there's no substance to it. God is not calling to our minds and hearts and giving us answers to the prayers that we have. We're not weighed heavily down by the burdens and spiritual realities that exist in front of us. Over here the last week or two, I've, we've uh, gotten our, um, our, our um, fireplace at home going and um, got some, some logs in there and Got it burning and got it real stoked and, and really hot. And, uh, you know, you get it so hot that you don't really have to be, our, we have a little wood that's a little damp. But if you get a fire hot enough, even if it's a little damp, it's going to burn. If you get it hot enough. And that was kind of the case yesterday. We got some of those coals real nice and hot. And I just sat there and I was kind of looking in the coals. And you know what I was thinking about. It's like for a moment I just forget. Not for a moment, for a long time I just forget. And all I could think about is people being in there and not being able to get out. A few times I was putting wood in there, you know, my hand get a little too close and I just got a little singe, just a little burn. And, and when you're not close to the Lord, those things don't mean much to you. It's just a fire. But suddenly when you are, it doesn't burn your hand, it burns your soul. I want the things of God to burn my soul. 
And as long as there is unrepentant sin, habits and lifestyles where we willingly turned our blind eye to the elephant in the room of our own life and live freely according to the dictates of our own hearts, ignoring the pleas of our conscience, it'll just burn your hand. David, it's just amazing if you really think about how far he falls. But as the Lord so often does, God is gracious. And this man, Nathan, came at the beckoning of the Lord. Look at verse 1 of our scripture reading. It says this, And the Lord sent Nathan. And the Lord sent Nathan. I believe that God does that to all of us sometimes, you know. I would say not sometimes, frequently. You're invested in this, and you're invested in that, and you're distracted by this, and you're caught up in that. And the things that transpire here and in the hearts of, in your own heart, are the furthest thing from your mind. And then by God's grace, He providentially sends something or someone into your life to grab your attention. I believe in the same fashion that this scripture indicates um, David's sin, it equally indicates why God chose him as king. And this is really important. Do you remember what Saul did when Saul sinned? God comes and he declares judgment. But Saul will not accept God's judgment. Saul continuously rebels against God and what God has determined to happen. And so what does he do? He tries to maintain control of the kingship. Not only does he do that, but whenever God has clearly chosen the next anointed king, Saul goes out of his way to kill David and to silence him and to ostracize, do everything he can that he might maintain control of his kingship despite what God has decided. He throws off. He, he, he goes into this spiral of sin that continues to go downward and downward that as God continually confronts King Saul, Saul is unwilling to hear the judgment of God. Saul is unwilling to re- fully repent of his sin. Now listen, he feels remorse, but he does not repent. And there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is a feeling. You feel bad that something happened. You, you, you might even weep and cry about it. But in no way does your heart turn from what you have done and willingly accept the consequences of what God has decreed now. Remorse is just feeling bad and wishing it had never happened. Saul continues and he gets so deep in his sin and God has, listen to this. I believe Saul was saved. You may differ from me, and that's okay. I believe Saul was a saved man. And God so distanced himself from Saul, and Saul becomes so desperate to hear the words of God that he runs off into witchcraft that he might stir up something, that he might know an answer from God. I've never gone to witchcraft, but there's been times in my life where I've been desperate to know an answer from God. And there have been times where Satan has tried to tell me, you have no place going before God's throne. 
I, I don't know that I, I didn't ever resort to witchcraft, but I was desperate. Saul was so desperate and yet determined to cling upon what he wanted. That rather than going to God, rather than going the right direction and saying, whatever your will is, if David is king, I will, I will surrender to his kingship. I will help him, give him guidance, and I will encourage him along his path. Rather than going that direction, he continues to rebel. This, to me, indicates why God favored David so highly. Here Nathan comes, sent of God. You know, there is something I want uh, there is something about people who are sent from God that just wraps my attention. Doesn't it yours? Like in the moment, I don't even perceive that it's God, but I do perceive that they're saying something that I must hear. I told you in a sermon previously about a man about a month ago when I was helping in revival and he got up. He was an older man and he was telling the story, and it was one of those testimonies where I'm thinking, what's this guy talking about? And he kept talking and talking longer and longer and longer, and, and everybody's kind of waiting to get to his point. Yet, what we came to learn is that all that was necessary to get to his point. And the further he got in the story, the more my, my heart was just clinging to what he had to say because I thought, I don't understand what he's getting at, but there's something to this. There's something substantive here. Now, looking back, I recognize it was the Lord telling us something through what this man had to say. Nathan comes to David. You know, when the Lord speaks, sometimes you don't know why you want to listen, but you just want to listen. You don't even recognize what it is until after the fact. But you know, I've got to hear this. Nathan comes and he starts off with a story. Talks, you know the story. He gives this little parable or story about a man who has a lot of sheep and one who has one sheep. And that one man that has one sheep evidently treated his sheep like a lot of people do dogs today. He just reared it up and took care of it, and it was like a companion to him. And it says it treated him like you would treat a daughter. So imagine the tenderness by which I can't think of a more tender relationship than a a father treating a young daughter. That's how he treated the sheep. And yet the man didn't want to spare any of his own, so he went out, he took that sheep, killed it to prepare for his visitor. And what it says here, and I love how the Lord works, because David is still blind. It never triggered, you know whenever people are talking sometimes and you feel like they're talking about you, but they're not coming out and saying it? That's not what was happening here. David was not perceiving, you're talking about me. In the King James, in verse 5, it says this, and David's anger was greatly kindled. In the Amplified Version, it says this, then David's anger burned intensely against the man. It's interesting sometimes whenever we hear stories how and this doesn't happen very often, at least not to me, how um, when we hear a story, how feelings can well up in you very powerfully. Just heard the story the other day about a woman who uh, was living in a homeless shelter for two years with her children. 
children was, one of her youngest kids were 20 months old and had never had a home, always grew up at that shelter, and she was working full-time job just to make ends meet but could never get ahead. And as she's telling this story, I mean, my emotions are just welling up in me because she's, she's full of tears and she's hurting and, and she's trying to figure it out, but it seems like every time she figures something out, she just... It falls back again, and, and I just start crying. She's not even done with her story, and I'm just welling up and welling up in this. I know you've been there, where you've had these things that just well up in you, and as you're being told these things, you're just, or perhaps injustice like this. If you're like me, I'm a person who I love justice. When I hear some poor person being taken advantage of, I can just get so mad and angry that I can even get violent against somebody because this is just so unjust. Or I have the temptation to go, I'm going to go make it right. If this was wrong, I'm going to go get in this situation because it's such a wrong situation. David was the king. He had the power to do something about the injustice. No person in all the kingdom could rectify this situation quite like King David could. And so he's burning in anger, learning about this situation. And he says, fine, I'm going to go make it right. I'm going to make the man who has stolen this other pay fourfold what this poor man was given. And then comes those powerful words that must have rocked David's heart like no other that he had ever heard. He says, you are the man. Imagine hearing that. Isn't it amazing? You can burn hot with anger and it's just like coals of fire just burning so hot that you could do any sorts of wicked, angry, horrible things in your anger and then all of the sudden, that hot anger is suddenly gone. And suddenly you stick back and you're like, whoa, That's me. Sometimes God is gracious in showing us ourselves in his sight. And it is grace. Because suddenly the sins of other people don't look so bad and there's this... Have you ever been ashamed before God for things that are hidden inside of you? Like... Thoughts that you've had that you never let come out that then you were proved wrong about. And God, for just a moment, gives you this insight to how you appeared in the hotness of your anger or in your judgment towards that person as he was seeing it all. I remember there has been a number of occasions in my life where I was down praying in my office at home in Indiana, and that, that, that came over me. And I remember getting so ashamed, I, I got under my desk in prayer to almost hide from the presence of God. And I just, I almost couldn't pray because I was just so ashamed that God, that somebody saw this, and it wasn't anybody else, it was God. I don't know exactly what David felt like, but I have an idea what David felt like. David said, you are the man. 
suddenly all those sins were no longer hidden. Suddenly all the judgments, I believe, that they cast, all the aspersions cast upon other people, all weighed heavily upon him. David, Nathan says this in verse 7, You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Now here to me is the, another occasion in the Bible where God is, is, he knows what he's doing. I know you know that, but it just illustrates this to me. Um, I've told you before about one thing that really jumps out to me about Jesus and his relationship towards the apostle Peter is once Peter has done all this failing on the night of Christ's crucifixion, that as he's, Jesus is standing there presumably bloodied and beaten for this false trial, the cock crows the third time after he, is, he has um, denied him. And Jesus, amidst taking on the sins of the whole world, bearing a burden that nobody could, rem- could, could even conceive of, takes the time in these pivotal moments to look over at Peter to remind him of what he's done. That's what it says. It says that Jesus standing there after the cock crowed the third time in the midst of this trial, Jesus just looks at Peter and makes eye contact with him. Why did he do that? I believe one reason why he did that is to drive the failure of Peter home. He's wanting to drive it so deeply in his heart because just hour earlier, Peter has boasted at how his allegiance to God could never be broken. In essence, his pride is manifesting just in such a, 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 just such a nasty way. It's just coming out, seething out of him. His pride is. And God knows, or Jesus knows, that God resists the proud. And if Peter is going to accomplish the spiritual things later in life that God desires for him to, that the first thing of Peter that must go is his pride. And so what does he do? In the midst of all the things, the sins of the world that he is dealing with, he looks and he gives that, that peer, that gaze into his eyes to say, remember that you failed me here. But he doesn't stop there. Because then three days later after he rises again, there he is before those fish. And he looks at him again. And he says, Peter, do you love me more than these other apostles like you said you did three days ago? He asked him that question. How many times? Three. Why? I think in part to reflect the three times that Peter denied him. There's a lot you could say about that scripture, but here's the point I want to make. God was, Jesus was driving home to Peter. Don't ever think more highly of yourself than you ought to. If you've done our devotional this week, you would see John 15 fits really good here. The vine abiding in the branches. I'm not going to go too far because I don't want to steal the husband's sermons here. Right? But there to, he comes to one part, and this hit me about, I don't know, 12, 14 months ago, really deeply. He said, without me, ye can do nothing. I don't know why. I was in my office just prior to getting down here, and it just hit me in this powerful way that it had never hit me with. I can't do anything. Anything. 
Here, God is doing to Nathan what he does to Peter. Excuse me. Nathan is doing to, to, to David what God did to Peter. He doesn't stop at just showing him, saying, you are the man. But he continues and said, this is what the Lord God of Israel has said. Let me remind you of all the things that God has done for you. Look at verse 7. I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house, wives into thy bosom. Gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. If it, excuse me, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Or in other words, he's saying there at the end, I would have given you much more. Or in other words, God is saying to him, what have I not given you that you wanted? I have given you more than you could have imagined. I took you from a little lowly shepherd boy governing sheep to now govern the most anointed people on the face of the earth. And that wasn't enough. I believe what God is doing here to David through Nathan is he's turning the knife a little bit and saying, without me, you can't do anything. Here's an important point that I want to bring out in this text. Listen to David's response. David had the power to kill Nathan if he wanted to, because you don't speak to a king like that. You don't ever speak to a king like that. You don't speak to anybody you respect this way, right? Not unless you love them. Unless you love them, then you will. You know, I believe one of the things in our culture that we're really losing is people being willing to, out of love, go and confront other people's sin. And then for people to respond the way David does. David doesn't point fingers to anybody else. He doesn't say, you know, Bathsheba, she shouldn't have been doing that. He doesn't, what does he do? He takes full responsibility for what he's done. Another scripture that has always affected me is the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you're surrounded by people that always tell you the good things about you and how much they like you, you've surrounded yourself with the wrong people. Because you're surrounded by people who self-love. But real love comes when you know, you're finding yourself in a mess. You're finding yourself in failing. You're finding yourself in sin. And they're willing to tell you in moments where they're led of God to do so, the truth. They're willing to say, well, have you ever considered this? Our natural reaction to that is to just be, you know, to push away and adamantly deny Point the finger someone else. Question the motive of the other person. That's the natural tendency. But notice here David, and this is one of the redeeming qualities of David, and I believe why, one of the reasons why God chose him as king. He doesn't do any of that. He has a humble, meek spirit about him. He hears what Nathan has to say, and he accepts responsibility and wants to change. You'll notice in here, It says later on that David or Nathan tells him that the 
consequences to your sin are going to affect other people. That's one of the hard things about sin that we've talked about before, I know, is that my unrepentant sin doesn't just affect me. It affects you. And your unrepentant sin affects me. And our unrepentant sin affects the Lord. Don't you notice here, I believe it's verse 11, where it seems now you've given cause for people to blaspheme the name of the Lord. You know what, what, have you ever walked away from an encounter with somebody? Or, um, or maybe you look back at sins you've committed in the past with, with your friends. Maybe when you were younger, you committed some sin with some friends. And now your friend is living deep in that life, whatever the wrong was. Or has turned away from God. And have you ever felt guilt that you kind of had a hand in it? Like, I was kind of part of encouraging that. Now, I'm not saying you ought to live with guilt on that. The point of what I'm trying to say is, our sin doesn't just affect us, it affects others. And what ought to be done when we find ourselves like David is to do what he did. What did he do? He comes open before the Lord, and anyone who knew him, he had committed this sin, he has nothing to hide anymore. I was wrong. God forgive me for this. And who knows whether God will withhold his punishment and consequences from others. Here, David, he repents of his sin. God does not take the consequences away from his sin. His child still dies, and the sword does not depart from Israel. But listen, friends, God remained with David and his line. God blessed David still despite what he had done wrong because although for a period of time, like all of us will be, he was blind to his sin, listen, he did not purposely remain blind to his sin. This morning I want to encourage all of us as this this weighs heavy on me. Let's not be blind to our own sin because we're so busy looking at the sins of others. Let's do what God instructs us to do. You know, one exercise that has been helpful to me over the years is to ask my wife, who knows me better than anybody, if something that I'm doing or if a a pattern of behavior I find myself falling into, what she thinks. What's my motive in doing that? What What do you think? And more times than I can count, she has put her finger on that hidden nerve that I'm trying to conceal from myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know it's there. I know probably the motive, but I just don't want to admit it to myself. And then when I hear somebody else say it out loud, ouch. I've done that with friends before. Ask somebody who I trust and I know, who I love, and who I know really loves me, and said, hey, do you think this? And you know that, that if you've ever gotten an answer to that, that initial moment where you hear the truth like David did, and it just punches you in the face, and in everything you want to just fight it, but you know it's true. 
Listen, friends, what that does is that makes us more holy when we do that. That makes us more like the Lord. That helps us not to hide and insulate our sins, but it helps us to know what they are and repent of them that we might not be blind to our own sin and as a result separated from God and deprived of the purpose and power that God would have us to to live with in this life. Ultimately, he wants us to be holy like he is. He wants us to mature that those, those sins that so easily beset us now will not so easily beset us as we grow in our faith. Right? There are some things that you might have struggled with 20 years ago that was a, a sin that you had a hard time getting away from. But now through God's grace and maturity, he has helped you to in some sense conquer those things which weighed you down. Here, that's a, a helpful thing is to, to do that. But the most helpful thing is to do what the psalmist David did. And the 139th Psalm, and many of you know this scripture, Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any evil way in me and lead me to the way that is everlasting. Asking the Lord, Lord, you know what not even my spouse knows. Show me. Send me a Nathan. If it comes through your spirit, or if it comes through a man or a woman, I don't care. Send me a Nathan that I might see because, Lord, I don't want there to be sin between us. And when he does, I pray that all of us would not remain willingly blind to it. You know, it's, it's amazing here that God sent this imperfect man, Nathan, to him, to David, and David hears it. But we could give you a counterexample to this. And that is that God himself came down in the form of human flesh. And he confronted while on earth some people of their sin. Those Pharisees, those righteous religious people were guilty. And God looked at them in the face and audibly told them, this is what you're doing. And yet... They wanted to be blind. And so even when God audibly told them to their face, and you know what he also said along with that on numerous occasions? You're blind. You're deaf. You have hardened your heart. Now that's one of the things that to me is a conversation stopper. If my wife and I are arguing about something or I'm talking with a good friend and we're arguing about something and they say the words, I feel like you're not hearing me. Immediately, it's a conversation stopper to me on my end. What if I'm not hearing them? What if I'm not getting it? Am I wanting to see what I want to see so badly that I won't consider the alternative? God himself audibly spoke, but some people were so dedicated to being blind. I think, I preached this during our last revival, I think that's what the parable of the sowers is all about. People try to get in there and say, well, this person and that ground means a lost person, this means a saved person. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I don't think he's talking about lost and saved. I think what he's talking about is degree of receptiveness. How willing we are to listen. 
There are some people that don't listen for all number of reasons. And there's one group that has good ground that will hear the seed. Will hear it. I pray this morning as you consider these things. Um, I, I, I hope. I hope they'll be a help to you. That's why I brought it before you this morning. Is to hope and pray that God would help you to see your own sin. That you might repent of it. Listen, I'll, I'll say this in closing. There are plenty of people in the world, plenty of Christians, the majority I would suspect, that go around talking about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with everybody else and what's wrong with the church and what's wrong with this brother or this sister. If you want to look for flaws, you're going to find them. And you're going to find them in more abundance than you ever imagined them. And it can discourage you and depress you and make you want to just quit, distance you from your brothers and sisters, distance you from your friends, distance you from your spouse, if you want. Distance you from your parents. There's plenty of people like that. Or you can be the type of person that says, you know what, I'm going to accept the fact that the people around me have a lot of flaws. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not going to sit in constant judgment of them. Why? I'm enough for me. My flaws, my... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be the type of person, rather than speaking at that person's sins and tones of condemnation, I'm going to do what I can through the Spirit to edify that person. I'm going to do what I can, even if the person is ignorant of their sin. I want to pray for them. I want to help them. I want to be an encouragement to them. I want to, if they recognize their sin, be a part of this group of people that lifts them up, builds them up, guides them, helps them. That's what I want to be. I'll tell you this. There's a reason why there are certain people that people can't get enough of. You ever hear somebody that's just always talked well of? There's a good chance one of the reasons is not because that person's perfect, but because that person is not someone who tears down but builds up. I told you this story before. I'll tell you one more time. Nathan and Marge York, he's a preacher up in Indianapolis. My formative years from the time I was about 15 to I was 22 years old, that's what they did. They spoke life. They saw my flaws probably more than most people because I stayed at their house an awful lot. They saw my flaws, but they were constantly building other people up and reflecting upon themselves. Day before I got married, I thought, you know, the rest of my life I'm going to be living with my wife, Lord willing, and 50, 60 years from now, I probably will never spend the night with Nathan and Marge York again. So I want to do it one more time. One more time before I get married. So the night before I got married, I went over and I spent the night at their house. Do you know why? Because being around them brought life to me. They saw me in my flaws at times when appropriate. Good old brother Nathan York had no qualms about speaking and being the the Nathan the prophet to me. 
and saying, young man, I wouldn't do that. And it had such an impact on me that I wanted to one more time in my life be around that. Be like that. If you're going to be someone, be Nathan, the prophet, to your friends. That's our message this morning. I pray God would use it. I, I, sermons like this, I always hesitate. I don't know why, but I pray that it would be edifying to you and helpful to you to consider some of these truths that the Lord has placed in my mind and heart today.